Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. My friends, I want to take a quick moment to give you a special invitation. If you enjoy the Live Inspired podcast, what would you say to joining me live once a month? And not just joining me, but hundreds of other like-minded Live Inspired community members. And what if you could do it from the comfort of your own home? My friends, Live Inspired in Studio with John O'Leary is exactly this, a gathering of our Live Inspired community members once a month for a live inspirational webcast. Let's do life together. Registration for in-studio only happens twice a year. And here's a secret, it's opening soon. Don't miss it. Sign up right now. Be one of the very first to know when Live Inspired in-studio registration opens. You can go right now, check it out. It's at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash studio. One more time, it's johnolearyinspires.com forward slash studio. All right, let's get back to the discussion. Well, hello, my friends. This is John O'Leary. So happy to have you here joining us in the Live Inspired Movement. You know, I had the opportunity recently to be featured on a a channel online called The Goalcast. It, it does phenomenal videos of individuals around the world. And when they reached out, I wanted to have a better sense of what their work was, what they were trying to do, the stories they were trying to tell. And in doing a little bit of research, I came across a woman named Najwa Zabian. She had such a remarkable story, such a remarkable heart, such a remarkable way of telling it. So real, so refreshing, so uplifting, so raw, that as soon as I watched it, I went from Goldcast onto a YouTube channel and watched a little, little bit more. Then into Instagram, then Facebook, and then onward from there. And I knew for our podcast, I wanted to at some point bring her on. We have the great pleasure today of hearing from this woman, hearing her story, hearing her courage, hearing her light and her life. And my friends, I think as you sit back and listen, it's gonna remind you that the best of your stories remain in front of you, but you gotta own them. You gotta fight for them. You gotta believe in that. So what I invite you to do today is to sit back, to buckle up, to open wide your hearts, open wide your eyes, open wide your journals, you're gonna wanna take some notes on this one. So get those journals ready, get those pens opened and get ready for a beautiful story with our newest guest, our newest friend, Najwa Zebian. Najwa, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you so much. What a wonderful introduction. Uh, it's short and to the point. You deserve much more than that, but we're gonna get into the much more than that during our time together. For, for those who are unfamiliar with your story and unfamiliar today with your work, give us a snapshot of, of what you do professionally in Nejwa. So I do many things. I often struggle with introducing myself because I feel like I can't just put one word and one label on who I am. I am an author, so I've written two books, um, and I have a third one coming out soon. I'm a poet. I'm a speaker. Um, 
I'm also a teacher. I teach high school, and I'm a student at the same time. I'm hmm. pursuing my doctorate. Within that work, I also, um, as a manifestation of all of these labels that I just mentioned, I have become an advocate for human rights, women rights, the rights of anybody who feels silenced. So that's who I am. <laughs> right. If anybody would like to uh, just, you know, because when you visit my social media or when you pick up a book of mine, um, there you, you really don't just walk away with one word no. and say, oh, Nezah Zabian's an author. I think people often describe me as someone who um, allows them to feel and allows them to be in touch with their human side. And I really believe, again, that that's a a manifestation of all of the labels that I am, not just one of them. Well, it's interesting you introduce yourself in that manner because when I introduce our guest, I almost always go through some of the labels of Mm -hmm. what they do and why they're on. And with you, I, (laughs) I sat back unable to write it in a singular fashion. So I introduced you way more broadly than I normally would. So why don't we dance into this this story of yours? Why don't we begin by with where you were born? Where'd you grow up? So I was the only one in my family born and raised in Lebanon. Uh, that's my parents' home country and my home country. So uh, my parents uh, both met in Canada, got married, had five children, and decided one day that they wanted to move to Lebanon because one day, my oldest sister came home, and my dad spoke to her in Arabic, which is our first language, and uh, she didn't understand him. So that really hit him hard, and he thought to himself, I need to teach my children their first language and their culture and all of that. So he up and left, um, and eight years later, I was born. That was in 1990. And, um, you know, I stayed there for about 16 years. And when I turned eight, because of the big age gap between me and my siblings... How, how large of a gap um, is that? So so there's an eight-year gap between me and, and the next siblings, which were twins, which made the gap even worse because I, I wouldn't have connected with the twins because they had each other. Mm. And then and then the, the others, the three others were older than them. So my oldest sister and me are 16 years apart. Okay. So they started coming back to Canada either to work or pursue education when they would hit 18, which meant that for much of my childhood and early teens, I was uh, pretty much getting raised on, on my own, either with my dad or with my mom. And my parents were always traveling back and forth. So that left me living with multiple relatives. Um, between the age of 8 and 16. Mm-hmm. And if anyone hasn't looked me up or or if they don't know anything about me, they would know that, or I would like them to know that um, really what got me to where I am today is my constant search for a home. And, you know, usually when we, when we, when we hear the word home, we think of a house or a place that, you know, that we can stay that feels like home. So I've been searching for the feeling of a home, a place where I can come to at the end of the day and just be myself and feel loved and feel valued for who I am. 
And I think during those years that I was in constant motion between different, living with different people, it's not that they didn't love me or didn't care about me, but I didn't have a consistent uh, person to come to at the end of the day. And, and as you know, it takes time to uh, trust a new person. It takes time to, to build that feeling of love and trust towards a person. So I, I kind of shut down and didn't talk about what I was going through. And so to everybody around me, I seemed like I was doing fine. But on the inside, I really struggled to, to feel whole and to feel like nothing was wrong with me because I internalized everything that I was going through, whether it was bullying in school for being too sensitive or, you know, for having good manners or for being too kind, I internalized that to mean that something was wrong with me. Because if I was getting bullied for these things, then something must have been wrong with me. Or if I was feeling excluded out of activities because of the way that I was, again, it's my fault. And I, I don't think that only children do that. I think we as adults still do that to some extent. We we internalize that behavior that's aimed at us to mean that something is wrong with us. So I had that growing up, and the only difference between the way I reflect on it now and the way that I felt it back then is the way I felt it back then, I didn't have any you know, psychology background right. to understand that, right? Or to tell myself, oh, it's going to get better or whatever. But now I do, and I look back and I think, yeah, that totally makes sense that I would have felt that way. Um, so that, you know, that pushed me towards finding other means to express myself. And on my 13th birthday, I was still in Lebanon, and I had one friend um, and she didn't even live in our village, so I only saw her in school because uh, my uh, my parents registered me in a school that was about thirty a thirty minute bus ride uh, from where we were. So she gifted me a journal on my thirteenth mm. birthday, and that was the first time that I started just writing my feelings out on paper. And it was a little weird at first because I wasn't used to it, and it just it. It wasn't something that I was familiar with, so, but I found myself coming back to it day after day. And that became that home that I was searching for because there was no one to tell me you're being too sensitive or you shouldn't feel this way. Nobody judging me for the way I was feeling. It was literally me filling my heart up. out on paper. That's right. Yeah. You so that's. Yeah. You you take this journal and you take that heart that is in some regards so beautiful and fragile and you are uprooted again. I believe it's age eight, uh, 16 to North America. You come yeah. to Canada. Why did you make mm -hmm. the move from Lebanon to Canada? So again, since the age of 13, I was visiting my family here every summer because they were all here and I was back home living with uh, with a relative at the time. I would come here for a couple of months and then go back in time for school. But um, on my 16th birthday, I came here uh, thinking that I was going to just visit my family for a couple of months. And the war broke out in Lebanon and I couldn't go back. And that was such an important year for me because I had grade 12. And grade 12 is the year right before university or college. And 
I just knew that I needed to make the decision of whether to stay or leave. It couldn't just be up in the air. So I had to stay. That's how I felt. I felt like I was forced to stay in a place Mm. that I didn't want to be in uh, because, you know, I knew that I, even at 16, I knew that I should be grateful for the opportunity of being in a country where, you know, education is much easier than it would be in Lebanon. Like my sister, because we lived in a very small village. My sister, when she attended university in Lebanon, she had to go all the way to the capital of Lebanon. So she, she, she lived there. So she would go back and forth every week. And it was about a three hour drive um, there and back. So it was, it wasn't as easy as it would be here or as accessible as it would be here. So I, I really knew that I needed to be grateful and I was, but you know, how do you get rid of that feeling that you don't feel like you belong? Well, right. Like that just overrides everything else because that's a basic human need. Let's, let's talk about that. It seems like that is your, uh, your longing on your heart to figure out how to figure out how to fit in. And I've even read, Najwa, that in high school, near the very end of your time in high school in Canada, that you had to almost be shown where the cafeteria was. You ate lunch every single day by yourself in the library, pretending that you just had an awful lot of work to get done. Talk talk about that. Mm -hmm. You know, um, (laughs) why are you so articulate and elegant and connect so well today but back then, it seems like you were unable to deeply connect with those around you. What do you think that is? What's the cause of this? Yeah, so the way I describe that year, I, I I felt invisible that year. I felt that everything was in black and white. I didn't feel like there was any feeling of joy or any feeling of of, you know, anything opposite to that. I was there was a deep sadness in me that never really made it to the surface where I would just burst out and express myself mm-hmm. at all. I was more of a listener at that time and an observer. And one thing that I didn't mention was when I came here and, and felt that I had to stay and didn't like that feeling, I actually ended up ripping up that journal that my friend gave me at 13, which had all of my writings since then. I ripped it up into tiny shreds and I really, I remember that day. I remember where I did it. I remember, you know, the, the, the pieces of paper just falling everywhere. Why'd you do and that? That was the day because I didn't want to feel anymore. I didn't want to, I didn't want this feeling of why do I not feel like I belong? I don't want to feel that feeling anymore. I, I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to talk about it anymore because I'd been writing about it for three years, telling myself it's going to get better, it's going to get better. And now not only was I not feeling like I belonged, but I was in a brand new place that I didn't even want to extend mm-hmm. the energy to feel like I belonged. So feeling was was hurtful it was it was painful and i didn't want that anymore so the easiest thing to do was to just numb the pain and say i don't feel this anymore and 
I don't want to feel anything else anymore. I'm just going to get by in life and do what I'm supposed to do. I was really good in school. My grades were high. My, you know, I, I had good manners, never got in trouble. And, and I settled for that. I convinced myself at that age that settling for that Is was enough. <laughs> good and Na- enough. Yes. Najwa, when did you begin pivoting from just dealing with idle, subtle pain and loneliness and not fitting in to saying, you know what, there's a better life for me and I'm, I, I got to find my story and find my voice? So that came seven years after I stopped writing, seven years after I ripped up my journal. And that was when I became a teacher. I uh, worked at the first year that I taught. Um, I was in a private school and I was given the title of a literacy teacher. And the very first day of the job, uh, we had eight Libyan students come into the school. And Libya at the time, so this would have been 2002, no, sorry, 2012, 2013, at the time that country was, was torn by war. And so we had these um, students who, again, just like me at 16, felt like they had to be in a new place, not wanting that, but they had to be. And they had to be grateful for being safe, physically safe, and being in a, in a geographical area or a geographical home that was safe. And these kids uh, ranged from grade 2 to grade 8. And it was really the grade 8 students and the grade six student that I really um, could see my 16-year-old self in because mm-hmm. they were going through the exact same struggles. I mean, they had the language barrier, which made things worse for them. I spoke English when I came here. Yes. But they really felt out of place. They really felt a lot less than everyone else around them. And, you know, they would... They would actually tell me, you know, why, you know, I'm not like this. I was so smart in school and I used to get such high grades and everybody would come to me when they needed help. And now I'm being made to feel like I, I'm, I'm not good enough. And that's horrible. And there were many tears, like many days that, it would just be an, an emotional day for them trying to adjust and trying to find a place. And so something within me, and I think it was that 16-year-old self who never healed, just got up and said, I need to do something for these kids because, of course, you belong here. Of course, you have a place. Of course, you're not less. Of course, you deserve to belong here. And so I started to write so that I could make them feel like they were empowered. I started to write about my view of education and how education should really empower students to find their own way and to make them feel like they are humans who are not less or more than anybody else. And so when I started writing, I, you know, I thought that I was writing for them, but I really think yes. I was writing to heal that 16-year-old self. So that's when I got back to it. That was, that was the pivotal moment that got me to think, you know what? I, 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 there's no progressing in life if I don't come to terms with my story 
And if I don't aim to understand it and instead of bury it and say, I'm never going to look back, uh, you know, bring it to life and say, I'm going to make sure that this never happens again, not to me or to anyone else. Nashua, one of my favorite authors is a gentleman named Henry Nowen, and he wrote a book called The Wounded Healer. And essentially in the book, it's a lesson that we got to use our scars to connect and then elevate those around us. Do do you feel like, Mm -hmm. and we're going to talk in a moment about other scars and bruises and challenges that you face going forward, but do you think that your challenges as a child allowed you specifically to connect with these other kids and their own brokenness? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what, that's the definition of empathy, right? Is to be able to put yourself in someone else's shoes, not just by feeling bad for them, but by saying, I totally get it. Thinking back to a time when you felt the same way, saying, I remember that feeling and this is how they're feeling right now. Is It's to use what you went through and the feelings that you felt to, to help you really connect with the person who's struggling that you're trying to help. Because you won't get the full motivation and conviction that you need to bring someone else out of their darkness unless you are able to fully feel that feeling that they are going through. So, yes, I agree. I agree with that 100%. Najra, you you mentioned several times really about seeking to discover who you were, where home, and whatever term that may even mean, where home actually was, and where to discover love. And and those are beautiful tenets and uh, ideas. But when you're seeking this stuff, it can frequently take you down a negative path, right? I mean, when, when you're looking for love, when you're looking for home, when you're looking to discover who you are, it can take you in places that might not ultimately be healthy. I'm, I'm curious. Were you making decisions during these years that you now look back on and maybe even regret or or not really? The years that I wasn't feeling at all. Right. The years that I was feeling like something was wrong with me. Exactly. Yes, I, I mean, I, I pushed people away. I, I really believed that, you know, it was easier to not allow someone into my life than to allow them into my life and then have them walk away because that's what I felt I'd been used to. Um, I, I appeared to be so tough. I was the person that everybody came to when they had struggles and I would listen to them. I would help them. And at the end of the day, I was feeling so empty and so uh, I didn't feel like my existence in this world made a difference. I felt like the world would be the same with or without me. And that is such a horrible feeling to feel. Um, So that's how, you know, me not coming to terms with anything that I, I went through in the past or anything that I was going through at the time, it, the conclusion of it at the end of every day was what am I living for? Why am I here? And, um, I, you know, I was never suicidal or anything, but, but to feel like you are just, yes. Yeah. Um, like, like there's a, there's a quote in Arabic where there's a way that you, you describe someone or something that's worthless. 
is by saying that they are a zero on the left of a number, mm. meaning you, you don't have a value, right? And that's mm-hmm. how, I think that's how I felt, is that I was there, but I had no value. And if I was there or not there, the world and the lives of those around me would remain the same. So I'm, I'm curious, is, I think you are a beautiful and a prolific poet, uh, and I'm not alone in that belief. You've you've impacted millions of lives around the world. Is there a poem from this time that you wrote that you think speaks to whether it was the loneliness and that that uh, pain, that isolation, or that that pivoting toward hope and possibility and vibrancy and life and connectedness to things that actually matter? Is there a poem that you might be willing to share with our listeners today? Yeah, for sure. So I have many here that I am. Um, there's one that I wrote that's called A Taste of Your Own Medicine. And that one I wrote uh, when, I, when I started writing again um, a few years ago. This was, about, this was about me starting to see everything about me that everyone in the past made me feel, made me a horrible person. Um, this was me saying, you know, who I am as a person actually makes me a, a more beautiful person. It was me honoring my ability to uh, be kind to people and, and help them out. So, so I wrote this and I will read it. This is page 193 in Mind Platter. Don't give them a taste of their own medicine. They already know what it tastes like. Give them a taste of your own medicine. If they lied, let your medicine be honesty. If they played with your emotions, let your medicine be maturity. If they broke you, let your medicine heal. If they made you cry, let your medicine make them smile. These remedies of yours may take years to work, but they work and they last. So be patient. Stay true to yourself and remember this. It is better for people to value you for who you are, not for who you pretend to be. Who you are lasts a lifetime. Who you pretend to be changes like the change of seasons. Don't be afraid to be yourself, even if it means removing yourself from lives that you want to be in. You are, no doubt, worthy of being valued for who you are. So be who you are. And that's it. Uh, that's one of my favorites um, in, in Mind Platter. And every time I read it, I feel... Um, right. Yeah, I feel like my purpose is is just more clear in front of me. So I hope that it inspires anyone who listened to it as well. Well, it inspired at least one and uh, a taste of your own medicine. Do you feel like you need a reminder to read that and to internalize it and then to act upon it frequently? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, I made a video yesterday, a couple days ago, about self-love. And in part of it, I said, one fact that I want you to know is that there is not one person on this planet who has mastered self-love. And I believe that there is not one person on this planet who has mastered loving everything about them that the world makes them hate. I do believe we all go through, even the strongest of us, we go through moments where we feel let down and where we feel like 
we are being taken advantage of because of how good we are or our kindness is being mocked or mocked as as being naive. We all go through that and I go mm-hmm. through that certainly. We're not immune to it. We're humans and we we have we we can't turn our emotions off and say at least if we want to live a joyful mindful life we can't turn those emotions off and say i only feel the good things and the bad things i just throw them to the side that just doesn't make any sense it doesn't make sense and you've been through mm-hmm. some bad things we don't have time to unpack all of them on this live inspired podcast but you recently uh, acknowledged one of those bad things publicly. And I'd like you, if you're open to doing so today, to talk briefly about what you went through uh, you know, not long ago and uh, what happened organizationally and what's happened subsequently. So that, that, that's mm-hmm. a little bit of the story, Najwa, but go, go ahead and take it over from there. Talk about some abuse that you faced. Yeah, so during the time that I started feeling again and started writing again, that was a time that I was getting into education. And at that time, um, I, there was, there was a man who, uh, you know, uh, um, worked in my organization and he was uh, at a much higher status within the organization. So I really, really, really looked up to him and he kept extending his hand to help me. Uh, you know, to help me progress in my career and progress in life. And I, I remember feeling at the time that, you know, uh, wow, like somebody believes in me. Somebody uh, feels, somebody sees about me what I've been needing to be seen. And somebody hears that voice that's been aching to be heard and all that stuff. So, um, you know, that felt great at the beginning. And then it turned into this man being interested in me on a personal level. And if you were to put that in the context of my story at the time, that's when I was telling myself that, you know, I needed to feel and I needed to allow people in and I needed to use all of that pain that I went through to help someone up. So this, this person came across as somebody who was very broken, trying to become better and, you know, he started making me feel guilty for, um, you know, him feeling horrible about himself and started making me feel like I was the only one who believed in him. And mm-hmm. and that's how he established that personal connection with me. And him being much older than me, it really fits into the narrative of adult grooming. And, you know, while I was perceiving it so innocently, um, also because this man not only belonged to my organization, but he belonged to my culture. So he understood the complexity of, you know, relationships, not just romantic relationships, but relationships in general mm. between men and women. So I trusted that he wouldn't do anything that would disrespect that. And that was a big mistake on my part. And I really do believe that, If I look at myself back then, I say I was very naive and I was very inexperienced. And um, if I look at myself back then more empathetically, I say, you know, you were doing your best. You were trying to make sense of this situation. And it turned turned to be a very abusive um, uh, relationship, a very abusive relationship. it was an abuse of power on his part, really, 
because I I never had an equal voice to his. It was always like he's in control. He tells me what to do. He um, even at one point, knowing knowing how emotionally vulnerable I was, took money from me and never gave it back to me. And and at the end, it turned around to tell me none of that happened. You made it up in your head and. For anyone who's experienced any kind of emotional abuse, that is the worst kind of abuse that you can go through. It's to have somebody that you've trusted for a long time and that you trusted would do the right thing, look at you straight and say, what you're telling me never happened. Mm -hmm. You made it up in your head. And, And so you're looking at this person and you're thinking, that no, I you don't you remember this time and what you said here and and what you did here and nope that never happened. You're making you're crafting stories in your mind, and that just makes you feel like you're crazy. I've heard you it refer to this question, as gaslighting. Talk about is, what you mean when you say gaslighting. Mm-hmm. So gaslighting is when you uh, manipulate someone into questioning their own reality. Um, so, uh, you know, it, like, no, that never happened. You made it up. You must be going crazy. Uh, the term actually, uh, originates in, uh, from a play in the 1930s, I believe, where a woman meets a man who's going to be her future husband and she falls deeply in love with him. They get married and this man is a narcissist and a psychopath, meaning that, you know, once his, um, he, he puts you on a pedestal to make you feel like you are everything and then out of the blue just takes that away and, and makes you feel like something is wrong with you. You're the one who changed. It's not me, it's you kind of thing. So he wanted to get rid of this woman who's his wife at the time. And because of how 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 complicated it would have been at the time to get a divorce. He needed to manufacture a reality where this woman would be, believe and become crazy. So he would go up to the attic and dim the gas so the lights would dim downstairs. And and the, his wife would tell him, you know, are the lights dim? Like, do you feel that? And he would say, no, I don't know what you're talking about. So that's where the term comes from. And emotionally speaking, uh, now and with what happened to me, it's exactly that. It's somebody trying to rewrite your story. Somebody trying to tell you, you never lived that. Let me tell you what you lived. Mm. And, 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 you know, you're acting like a victim. You're making stuff up because you have the victim mentality and you want people to feel bad for you. And, you know, who do you think you are for me to have said the things that you said I said in the past or did the things that you said I did in the past? Who do you think you are? Do you really think that I would invest my time and energy into someone like you? That's really what it turns into. And that's what it turned into in my case. And what made it worse for me is the cultural stigma uh, towards a woman sharing her story, towards a woman saying, especially if it's a man from the community itself and from the culture itself, to say, you know, that man hurt me that way and took advantage of me that way. Uh, You're considered as the woman, as the one to blame, because you should have known better and you should have 
not responded to his messages or his phone calls or you shouldn't have reciprocated what he said to you because, you know, he's a man and men to a certain extent can't control themselves. And it's all that really cultural backward. stuff. Yeah. You, you so, eventually yeah. report this pattern of abuse and it, it is a pattern. It goes on. You're given a few of the, the notes now, but there are many, 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 many others that you're not sharing. And eventually, after a review, nothing is done. So you've put yourself out there. And in some regards, they almost validate this gaslight syndrome where you you almost start to think, I'm crazy. I must be crazy. Oh, it was horrible. I remember days when I was seeing a therapist at the time because I was trying to make sense of all of this. And really, it could have ended me. Like, you become a totally different person and you just don't understand what's going on. And so I was, I remember days when I would be in my therapist's office and I would just be lying down on her couch and bawling my eyes out, just crying, telling her this person thinks I'm crazy. And this person believes him, not me. And this person, and all of these people were higher ups in my organization And imagine how you feel when the whole leadership of the organization that you are just beginning in believes that you are crazy or believes that what you told them happened to you never happened to you or that it was your fault. And on top of that, they're telling you to shut up. It was horrible. I felt even worse after coming forward. There were days when I would say, I wish I never did. Because it got me to a worse place. I don't feel that way now, but at the time I did. And that teaching was my only, it was my only source of income. It was my only dream. It was my, it was everything to me. And I was seeing my whole world falling apart. And, and it was like, there's nothing I can do about it. That's There's nothing you, I can do to change it. You lost 25 pounds and you're, uh, you started off skinny to begin with. So you, you lost 25 pounds. You really are wasting away. I've also read that you wrote around this idea of mountains, that you felt as if you were carrying mm-hmm. these mountains on your shoulders. And then yeah. there was this r- realization. You recognize that the mountains are there. Yes, indeed, they are there, but they are there to be climbed, not carried. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Yeah. All of these, all of these things that I was just telling you, these feelings of isolation and feeling so small and powerless and rejected and um, undermined, all of those feelings just weighed me down. I was walking around, if you can imagine this, feeling like I was, I had these ropes that I was that I was pulling behind me to be able to to walk and to move forward and these ropes were connected to mountains. I felt the weight of every single one of those feelings as I was trying to push through life and I couldn't do it anymore and I said to myself, you know, there must be something that this is teaching me. This can't be it. It can't be it. So I thought to myself, 
the more I move forward in life, and I'm not even moving anymore because of how heavy the weights are, the more I move forward, the more mountains I'm going to accumulate, and I'm just going to stay in one place and not move anymore because the the my physical weight is going down and shrinking because all the effort that I'm expending mentally, physically, emotionally to understand what I'm going through and to... To, to talk myself out of all these feelings and to heal myself when really what I need to be doing is not allowing these mountains to remain as weights, but allowing them to become what I can conquer. Mm. Allow them to become, I'm expending the effort anyway. Why not expend it while I'm climbing these mountains? Why not expend it while I'm healing and, and trying to conquer these feelings altogether? Because, if I can get to the top of that mountain or if I can get to the bottom of that feeling that I'm feeling, I can look back and say, look how far I've come. Mm. I'm building myself somehow instead of just carrying those feelings and, and just to visualize it as these mountains that you are carrying, you were only supposed to climb. It gives me so much power to think about it that way. And that way, any struggle that comes my way not just what I was going through at the time, even to this day, any struggle that comes my way, I tell myself, this is not just meant to stay. This problem didn't come my way just so it could stay. It came my way so I can learn something from it, so I can elevate myself from it. You and I are having this conversation, and as we are, the hashtag MeToo movement is uh, trending on Twitter. It's everywhere. But when you are living through this, those uh, hashtags and the conversation nationally and internationally around it weren't being had. So I'm curious, when hashtag Me Too comes into existence and it's after you've been through some of the storms you've dealt with in your life and after you've been carrying a mountain around for a long time, how did this struggle finally making its way to light make you feel? Ah. That's when I really felt the weight of the mountains coming off my chest. That's when I felt like I wasn't keeping my story inside, burying it, um, and that I wasn't alone. Because I remember clearly the day that I saw that hashtag on Twitter, I thought to myself, what is this about? And I, I clicked on it. And the first thing I thought was, it's not enough for me to say me too because I already said <laughs> me too. So what am I going to do? So I just shared my story in four lines. I said me too, and I was blamed for it. I was told not to talk about it. I was told that it wasn't that bad, and I was told to get over it. And overnight, it went viral. It was picked up by the New York Times. It was picked up by CBS News. It was picked up by... The Times of India, like so many different places. And that doesn't mean anything to me compared to someone reading it and saying, she said my story and I'm not alone. And, you know, she's, she's, she's experienced this as well. That means that, you know, I, I, my experience is validated as well. So feeling like I was part of a a community of people instead of being the only one who experienced this. Mm. Oh dear. It was so much power, so much power that just came into me and it actually empowered me to share my story publicly and name my abuser 
a few months later and say, this is who he is, and this is what he did to me. He is of great power and influence, but I don't care because I will no longer allow his power to be over me. And that's what that hashtag empowered me to do. That's what that feeling of being one in among millions empowered me to do. Were you surprised at the response? So I received positive and negative response. Yes. <laughs> um, the, the response, uh, I'm going to start with the response that happened media-wise and, and from the organization and um, just the, the systemic things that happened, and hopefully this will give people some hope. Uh, this person was, uh, uh, more women came forward saying, you know, I also reported this man years ago. Um, students came forward saying, um, you know, this is what he said to me or did to me years ago. And um, that pushed the organization to do something about it. And the police in my city uh, actually started an investigation because of allegations that came forward to them by women. And he was charged with sexual assault and sexual exploitation of students. This was only a couple months ago. I think less than two months ago it happened. And, you know, everybody said, had you not named him publicly, each one of those women would have thought she was the only one. So you naming him made each and every one of those women believe that she wasn't the only one and that she had to report what he did to her. So that, that was a really, that was, a, that, was a, that was such an empowering feeling and humbling feeling really to have. In terms of the, the community response, there were a few people who were very supportive. There were... There was a big majority of my community who was totally against me, uh, sending me uh, horrible messages and comments and emails. Um, Ashwa, saying, when, you, when you say your community, yeah. do you mean your your religious community, your neighborhood, the people you work with? I would say uh, I would I, I'm including all of them in it. Okay. Yes, my religious community. Um, uh, you know, there was a lot of victim shaming there. Like, you should have known better. You shouldn't have responded to him. You shouldn't have reciprocated, all that stuff. And, you know, you just ruined his career. And, and he was someone who made our community look good because he was a big leader in the educational community and all that stuff. And you just made, uh, you just made us as a community, as a religious community, look horrible again. Because, yeah. you know, Muslims are always under there's a lot of Islamophobia out there. So I was being blamed for making my religious community look bad when it was his behavior yes. that made us look bad. It, all I did was expose what he did to me. The extended community in terms of the educational community and, and the rest of the community here in my city, there was also a lot of, you know, but he never touched you and he never did this or never did that. It's all emotions. It's all this. And, and I just, uh, there is no way for you to, if somebody doesn't want to believe you, they will make up an excuse not to believe that's you. Right. That's what I've, that's what I've come to believe. And 
also uh, receiving, being at the receiving end of this, when I've been the, the, the girl growing up who's always like um, quiet and, and never raised her voice and never really upset anyone or made anyone angry, to be at the receiving end of this hatred. It was hatred. It wasn't just criticism. It was hatred. It hurt me so much. There were days when I would ask my mom to come over to sleep next to me in my bed because I was I was so broken. I was feeling so I just I needed someone to hold my hand so that I could feel like I was here, that I was present. That's how bad it became and I don't think anybody knew that. And so for me to go through that whole experience itself and then to raise my voice and say this happened and then experience a different kind of of abuse from those around me it was it, it pushed me towards myself it pushed me towards being more convinced and and having more self-confidence and more um, conviction in my beliefs and in my voice so it was it was a, a blessing a blessing in disguise for sure Nashua, in raising your voice, and this will be my final question before we pivot into yeah. the Live Inspired 7, but in, in raising your voice, what have you learned? What have you learned about yourself? <laughs> oh, dear. I've learned that... Um, I've learned that it's important for me to believe myself first before I expect anyone else to believe me. And it's uh, more important for me to believe in myself first before I expect anyone else to believe in me. It's more important for me to raise my voice than expect someone to fight for me. Because through this whole thing, to get heard, I was the one who had to raise my voice. There wasn't anyone coming to me saying, you know, I noticed that you're going through a hard yeah. time. Is there anything I can do to help you? I had to say, I had to, I had to pave a road that no one paved before for myself. And that was my road. And so in raising my voice, I learned that I, I needed to not follow anyone or expect anyone to lead me. I needed to, I needed to start paving that road. You needed to have a taste of your own medicine, it sounds yes. like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nashua Zabia, yeah. we, we uh, have had the pleasure of having all, uh, numerous guests from around the world onto our Live Inspired podcast. And the thread that connects all of them together is that we ask them seven questions as we wrap up. They're called the Live Inspired mm -hmm. Seven. And the first one is, what is the best book that you've ever read? The Prophet by yeah. uh, Khalil Gibran. Great book. Why, why'd you choose that? What, what's, what's, uh, <laughs> what's your favorite aspect of The Prophet? I love the fact that uh, it talks about elements of love and life and purpose and friendship, and it, it's timeless. Like, it was written decades ago, and I feel like if I were to read it in 2,000 years, it would mm -hmm. still make sense. Yeah. What is one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a child in Lebanon, which you wish you still possessed and exhibited as brightly today? <laughs> um, innocence mm. innocence because when I was young I used to um, 
I used to take everything at face value. I I wouldn't hesitate to smile. I wouldn't hesitate to if I if I saw someone struggling, I would get emotional right away and think of what can I do to help them. Whereas now, and this is a constant struggle for me, when I see someone struggling, I you know it is my my initial reaction to say I want to help them. But because of everything I went through, I can't help but wonder to myself whether someone's trying to take advantage of, of mm-hmm. that trait in me. When, whereas as a child, I never, I never had that in the back of my head. Shifting gears a little bit from innocence into mm-hmm. priorities in some regards, if your mm-hmm. home caught fire and all living yeah. things are already out, so your family, your yeah. friends, your animals, and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, what, what's that one item that you would return with? My journal. I'm glad you're not ripping it up and letting it burn any longer. <laughs> Those days have passed. Not this time, no. <laughs> if you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anyone, living or dead, who would you want to have that nice long visit with? Uh, it's a hard question. Um, my grandma, because I, I lived with her for most of those years that my parents were not around because she and I would move together to these different homes. And I remember so many lessons that she taught me, um, as a child, I spent so much time with her. She would tell me, old stories and um, uh, her experiences going through the war and what she learned in life about life. And I never got a chance to to say a proper goodbye to her. She actually passed away a year after I moved to Canada. And I was so angry that I wasn't able to say a final goodbye to her. So I I would pick her. What's the best advice that she or anyone else that you want to pick has ever given you? So what's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice that I've ever received. I think I received this from multiple people and it's to, and this is what I'm trying to live right now is that I need to put myself first and able in order to, to to be able to continue to give that I need to give mm-hmm. myself before I'm able to give anyone else and to build healthy boundaries because I can easily go down the spiral of constantly helping people because I get such a great sense of gratification there and at the end of the day when I feel completely depleted I have to tell myself it's because you didn't spend any time doing something for yourself. You didn't spend any time um, saying no, really, Right. when you can say no. Uh, so I, I've received this advice from multiple people. I've received it from my dad. I've received it from my therapist, from my mom, from very close friends to me. So It's good advice it that be right. <laughs> I think all, all those who are givers, whether in healthcare or teachers or givers in life, need to hear that advice from time to time. You you can't take care of others if you don't first take care of yourself. What, mm-hmm. what, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? 
my 20-year-old self. I would tell her that uh, I would tell her you should forgive yourself Mm. for not you should you shouldn't be very hard on yourself and you should you should forgive yourself for being so hard on yourself and for tying your happiness to people welcoming you in their lives that's what i would say it's good advice for all of us to hear and this is my <laughs> final question to Nejwa Zabian Nejwa It has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? As a description of myself or as a... As a celebration of the life you lived. Uh, Najwa Zabian truly lived and owned her own story. Hmm. Well, Najwa Zabian, who truly did own and live out her own story, she is an author, a poet, a speaker, teacher, student, advocate for all human rights. I want to thank you on behalf of our Live Inspired community for finding your voice, for climbing your mountains, and for teaching the rest of us to take our medicine. Thank you so much. Um, This was amazing, and it made me, again, come in touch with my purpose, and I'm so grateful that I had this opportunity. It's it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. It's been ours. My friends, that is Nejwa Zabian. This is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Climb those mountains and live inspired. My friends, I want to take a quick moment to give you a special invitation. If you enjoy the Live Inspired podcast, what would you say to joining me live once a month? And not just joining me, but hundreds of other like-minded Live Inspired community members. And what if you could do it from the comfort of your own home? My friends, Live Inspired in studio with John O'Leary is exactly this, a gathering of our Live Inspired community members once a month for a live inspirational webcast. Let's do life together. Registration for in-studio only happens twice a year. And here's a secret, it's opening soon. Don't miss it. Sign up right now. Be one of the very first to know when Live Inspired in-studio registration opens. You can go right now, check it out. It's at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash studio. One more time, it's johnolearyinspires.com forward slash studio. All right, let's get back to the discussion.